0: Well, if you will, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Um, we are going to continue our study of Luke this morning, but I want to start in, uh, in Genesis 18 for the simple reason uh, that Luke um, actually uh, subtly uh, points us to this passage at least three times between Luke 9 and 10. And so, Uh, You might be familiar uh, with the story there. It's a story of of, of a city called Sodom, which was um, leveled uh, by God. Uh, God uh, rained down fire from heaven upon this city and completely wiped it out. And this is one of those stories that people look to, and they look at in the Bible, and they they say, "Um, this is why I can't believe in God. Uh, To see somebody uh, who is is so full of wrath and so full of judgment, this is a God I can't believe in, or at least I can't believe in in the Old Testament view of of God. And I think that we, the people that that would say that, um, say that because they don't see or they don't encounter the whole story within the right context. And so this morning, um, we're not going to look at the whole story, we're just going to look at one aspect of it. Uh, one that we don't tend to focus on very much. Um, and and this little aspect of the story and the heart behind it will help us uh, when we encounter uh, what we'll look at in, in Luke 9 and, and 10. And so uh, to sort of set this up, um, there's a man named Abraham. He's Abraham, he's sitting at the front of his tent, and God shows up. And according to, to Genesis 18, God shows up, and, and it's three men. It says there's three men who come, and these three men are God. So three, plural, one, singular, it seems uh, kind of confusing. They come to Abraham to share some good news with him. He has has been promised for a very long time that he is going to be uh, the the patriarch of, of, of many, many people. That many, many people are going to come from him, and and the difficulty with that is that you have to have at least one son to be a patriarch, and he has none. And so God has promised him that he'll have a son. Well, he shows up this time to let him know, hey, a year from now, you're going to be holding that bouncing baby boy, you and Sarah, you're going to have uh, a son. That promise is going to come true. And so they deliver the message, and then we see this weird little conversation that happens between these three, and and it's about whether or not they're gonna clue Abraham into what's gonna happen next, and they decide to clue him in. And they let him know that there was an outcry that has risen to heaven, an outcry against the people of Sodom over acts of injustice. And so God has come down to see for himself whether these, this outcry is justified, and if so, then he intends to destroy it. Now, there's all sorts of kind of confusing things um, that are in this passage. Um, lots of theological questions, you know, how, how is it that God's three people yet one? How is it that um, you, know, you would think that God from heaven would be able to discern all these stuff? Why does he need to come down? Why does he need to go and investigate? Is God really omniscient? Is he really omnipresent? And, and, and Genesis isn't, isn't uh, refuting those things, but we'll explain a little bit more in, in a minute. But there's all sorts of questions that, are, that arise from this. So let me read this to you, and, uh, and, and we'll discover even, even more questions. Uh, Luke 18, beginning in verse 23, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you still destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So um, even more questions come out of that. Um, One is, is, is Abraham like more just than God? Is Abraham more righteous than God? Is he more merciful than God? Why is it that Abraham needs to intercede? Why does Abraham need to stand between God and Sodom and, and say, you, you can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. That's, that's not fair. That's not just. And you're the God of justice. Is, is Abraham actually better than God? And, uh, and so there's all these questions. And, and we're not doing a study of Genesis this morning. But we do need to, to answer a couple of things so that it'll help us when we get to Luke. The first thing you need to understand when you study the book of Genesis is that um, there is a a ton of uh, anthropomorphic language that's used in in the book. What that means is um, here are these people who are learning about who God is. That's Genesis written to an audience who is just learning about God, and and you don't have a frame of reference for God, and so you use human, um, uh, you know, Abilities or or a human understanding, and you apply those things to the divine in order to help you understand the divine. And so it's called anthropomorphic language. It's it's a humanizing of God, and it can be helpful, but it could also be uh, unhelpful at times. So when you see that three people show up, but those three men are called one God, the, the author of Genesis is trying to communicate the Trinity trying to help us understand what the Trinity is, is like, and that's how they choose to, to do that. Um, w- when it comes to God's omniscience and his omnipresence, uh, Genesis doesn't belie that fact or, or deny that fact, but it, it shows us a picture of, of God that's, that, that is, well, it, it's essentially, um, it's a little bit more human than it could be or should be in order to help us understand, Right? Uh, The the second thing to understand about Genesis is Genesis is this this major theme running through it is that uh, we are created in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God. In other words, when you look at human beings, you're meant to see what God is like. You're you're meant to see a reflection of who he is in his character. Now, at the fall, that 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 image in us was broken, it was marred, but it wasn't completely obliterated. And so when humans do what is right, when we are righteous, then there is a glimpse glimpse of who God is. Um, Genesis, in this passage with Abraham, is trying to show us who God is like by actually looking at the mirror of God. Abraham is reflecting to us what the heart of God looks like. And here is Abraham, and he's, he's, he's interceding on behalf of this city. He doesn't desire to see it destroyed. He desires to see it saved. That's actually the heart of God. He's actually reflecting the desire of God. When when Abraham's going back and forth, will you save it for 50 righteous? Will you save it for 45? Will you save it for 40 or 30 or 20 or 10? This is Abraham. He's interceding on behalf of these people. He's reflecting what God's heart is actually like for these people. We have, I think, oftentimes this idea or this notion of God that he's like this angry kid standing over an anthill with a magnifying glass just wanting to fry people. We think that... Oftentimes, that's what God is like. When the truth is, is all of redemptive history has shown us that God has come after us to pursue us and restore relationship with us. When we look at at this passage, in Genesis 18, we're, we're meant to see a man who's reflecting the heart of God, and there's something about this that we need to see and look for in ourselves. And I want to begin with two questions this morning. And the first is this. Do you or we, do we want to see God save people? Do we, do we want to see God save people? And if you would say, yes, you want to see God save people, are we willing to participate in that salvation? I'm going to pause and pray, and we'll get into Luke 9 and 10. Heavenly Father, thank you for the history of redemption that since the beginning, when we broke our relationship with you, when we rebelled and sinned against you, when we walked away from you, you chose to pursue us. You are a God of justice, and justice has been met by you. And you are a God of mercy, and you are a God of love, and you are a God of grace. God, I pray this morning that people would hear and see all of those aspects in you, be reminded of those things in you. And because we have been saved by that grace, I pray that you would give us the heart and the love to see the world around us who is in desperate need of you. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Luke, we're going to begin in verse, uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 57 and go uh, through part of chapter 10 this morning. And what I want us to see is that the God of the Old Testament who wanted Abraham to reflect not only his justice but also his grace and his mercy, the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And in Jesus, in the Son of God, in the second person of the Trinity, God takes on flesh and he shows us fully who he is, what he is like and what he wants. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And it's not a God who's standing over an out hill with a magnifying glass. So read with me, beginning in verse 57. As they were going out, oh, I'm sorry, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, "'Leave the dead to bury their own dead. "'But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God.' "'Yet another said, "'I will follow you, Lord, "'but let me first say farewell to those at my home.' "'Jesus said to him, "'No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back "'is fit for the kingdom of God.' "'After this, the Lord appointed 72 others "'and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, "'into every town and place where he himself "'was about to go.' And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Um, The instance here of of sending out the 72 is peculiar to the gospel of Luke. It's not in, in Matthew or Mark or John. And that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that those other gospel writers, it didn't suit their purposes when they were writing. Luke uh, really wanted to to highlight this. Uh, Luke is also the author of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Acts of the Apostles. And, and Acts is all about the, the growth of the church. It's all about how the church got started and how it, it grew. Um, Luke really wants us to see that there is this multiplication aspect in the following after of this Jesus. It begins with 12, it goes to 72, then 120 in Acts 1, and then 3,000 in Acts 2, and then all of a sudden Luke stops talking about the multiplication of individual disciples, and he starts talking about the multiplication of whole church Churches, as, as this is beginning to face, or change the face of the world as churches after churches are multiplied. To Luke, it's important that we understand that what we're participating in as theophiluses, as, as lovers of God, what we're participating in is something that is meant to grow and to multiply. And he points that out, and this happens here with the 72. We need to understand that if we are lovers of God, then we should want what he wants, and that is to see humanity saved by him and to be willing to participate in the work of that salvation. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Um, from uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 3, we see these three handles, and I want to explain those because that's what I'm going to use for the rest of our time together. He uses this word, followers, or I'm sorry, laborers. Laborers. Laborers is, is the, the, the human handle, the handle for, for human participants in salvation. For disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and are pursuing Him and have chosen to join Him, we are laborers. The second handle that we see there is is the harvest. Those are the people that we're sent to, those are the people who are in need of salvation, those are the people that need to hear about the kingdom of God. And then the last handle is the Lord of the harvest that's Jesus. Jesus is the one we labor for. All right? So uh, those are some, some terms to help us uh, stay on the same page. We're gonna look through at four different things this morning. The first is uh, the requirement of the laborers. Uh, what is required of the laborers? What's the job description, so to speak? Uh, we'll look at the mission of the laborers toward uh, the harvest. How do we go about this? What are we doing? The heart of the laborers toward the harvest. How do you feel about the world around you? That's huge. And then lastly, the rejoicing of those laborers with the Lord of the harvest, looking at what good comes out of it and rejoicing with God. So, diving in, the first requirement of the laborers. Again, 9 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first requirement if you are to labor in this way, is to understand that the work we'll do is costly. That working in this way is is costly. Are you prepared to to follow Jesus in this work and are you prepared for the great personal loss and the personal cost of following him? Earlier on, he, he said this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, here's an individual who's come to Jesus and and Jesus knows his heart. He comes and he says, I'll follow you anywhere you wanna go. I'll follow you everywhere. But Jesus, he knows what's going on in his heart. He's following Jesus or desires to follow Jesus for what he can get out of the relationship. Jesus at this, this point is his star is sort of on the rise, so to speak, he's becoming more popular, more and more people are coming out to see him and listen to him, like the trajectory that Jesus is on from a human standpoint is more power, more authority, more, more prestige, more glory, more honor. In other words, it looks like he's headed toward a throne. And for this individual, the idea of joining in at, at this moment in the ministry of Jesus seems like a really, really good idea because he's gonna take you places. And Jesus knows his heart. This is going to cost you. This isn't going to improve your situation. You're not going to have any material reward or benefit from following me. In fact, if you look at me, I'm homeless. I'm homeless. The point is that the lover of God, should, should he choose to labor for him, will have to surrender a kingdom in order to promote his kingdom. It's about giving up. Now, the interesting thing about what we see here is that this person, um, he, he, we don't know his response. Luke doesn't tell us whether he chose to stay with Jesus or to leave. And the reason why Luke is doing that is because he's really putting the question to us. Are you prepared to follow him at great personal cost? Are you prepared to give up the safety, the security of home in order to follow him? Well, uh, verse 59, the second requirement. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The second requirement of a labor is to understand that all of our relationships get reordered. Um, in that particular society, it was, it was acceptable for a person for a period of time to forego religious uh, duties in order to take care of familial obligations. It was acceptable to do that. And, and, and Jesus actually is beginning to turn this on, on its head. He's actually saying something very, very extreme here. When he says, let the dead bury the dead, This is something very extreme. Um, He's actually quite fond of doing this. Uh, Matthew five, he says something like this, that if your your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now does Jesus actually mean that if you sin, you should cut off your hands? No, that's not what he means. But what he's saying is that, that you should take sin so seriously that you should take righteousness so soon that you should should desire for righteousness and to avoid sin because you love him who has saved you, that you should go to such extreme lengths. He's not saying cut off your hands. He's saying take this seriously. When when Jesus says uh, let the dead bury the dead, he's not saying you don't get to go to your parents' funeral. He's not saying don't honor your father and mother. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have a new reordered way of viewing your relationships. You know, we live in a culture where where family goes first. Family comes first. And maybe some of you cling to this. Family first. And so whether it's dealing with your parents or dealing with your spouse or dealing with your children, it's family first. And the reality is for the, for the laborer of God, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not family first, it's me first. It's my kingdom first. And yet so many Christians, we're, we're foregoing relationships in our community, ministry in the places in which we, we work in and in, in places in which we live. We, we forego uh, involvement in ch- church leadership, all sorts of things because we're saying to ourselves, after I've gotten married, after I've raised my kids, after I've buried my parents, then I'll have time for the work of Jesus. But family first. Jesus says, no. Your relationships get reordered. It's Jesus first. It's his kingdom first. You know, today's Father's Day. You know that. And I I am blessed with the fact that I, I have a father who has put Jesus first. And because he has put Jesus first, I see his relationship with my mother. I see how he, he relates to, 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 to my brother and I. Because he's put Jesus first, it has made all the difference. The, the reality is dads, dads hear this. Like your family is not to be worshiped and to prevent it from being worshiped, put Jesus on the throne, put him as first, and that will order all of the relationships that you have. You wanna love your spouse well? Put Jesus above her. You wanna love your children well? Put Jesus above them. Jesus first. Are you prepared to reorder all of your relationships in order to labor after him? Third requirement, verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is really interesting because Jesus is alluding to two different things. Let me read the first one to you. This comes from 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. This is where a prophet named Elijah is uh, calling a guy named Elisha to follow him. He says this, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him. And he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh and the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is a picture of a man who is going to follow after Elijah, but he is making a hard stop to his previous life. So much so that he's sacrificing the family oxen. I'm sure his parents were really, really proud of that moment. He destroys the family oxen and he throws a party with it. And he's making a break to his old life to follow after Elisha. On the other hand, there's something else that Jesus is alluding to. When he says, um, uh, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, he's he's actually referencing Sodom again. Um, God looked at at, at Sodom, and he, he didn't find 10 righteous there. There was a family that he chose to save out of that, but it was because of their relationship to Abraham. But he saves this family, a guy named Lot and his wife, and he has two daughters. But the angels of the Lord, they, they come to this family and, and they, they take them out of Sodom, and they say, as you go, don't look back. Don't look back. But Lot's wife does. She looks back, and she looks back because she's leaving home. She's leaving what's familiar. She's leaving the life behind that she wanted to live, but it's a place of sin and darkness, and she is looking back with longing to a place that she's actually being rescued and saved from. I heard a pastor say this week that if you give people a vote, they'll always choose to go back to Egypt. It's this picture of, of, of the book of Exodus where God has taken uh, his people out of slavery in Egypt and yet because of the, the harshness of the wilderness and the things that they face, the, these people, they want to constantly go back to slavery. They want to go back to bondage. It's a looking over their shoulders. And what we have in, in this passage is these, these two pictures. On the one hand, there's Elisha who's he, he's burning the bridge. He's going to go forward. And then there's Lot's wife who's looking back at the life that she's longed for. She wants to keep. Um, It's said that uh, Cortez, when he when he came to the New World, that he he burned his ships as a way of, of of helping his men see like there's no going back. There's only going forward. Now he did that for wealth and fame. We as laborers are called to do that for Jesus, for Him. Like there is no going back. There is no looking back. There's only going forward. There's this reality that that, that we could look back on our past life before we were saved and see see the the, the sin in which we lived, and we can miss it. There's a word I want to point out to you. When when Jesus says that uh, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back isn't fit for the kingdom of God, that word fit there is uthetos. It's this Greek word. It means well-placed. It's like a puzzle piece, or it's like, it's like a square peg in a square hole, like to, to look at what Jesus has done and to follow him and not look back. You find your fit, you find your place in his kingdom, but to constantly be looking over your shoulder and long for the life that you once had, that, that's out of place, that doesn't fit, that doesn't work. So the next question for you is, is will we leave behind that life that we wanted with all of the glitter and the temptation and the promises of self-fulfillment in order to labor for Jesus and his kingdom. Moving on to the, the mission of the laborers to the harvest. And I'm not gonna belabor this point. Um, I addressed this two weeks ago when Jesus sent out the 12. There's a, lots of similarities with that passage. But to, to briefly say this, the mission of the laborer is to proclaim the kingdom of God. These, these disciples, they were given power to demonstrate the kingdom of God, but it was more about proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that Jesus inaugurated with his death. He'll consummate it with his return but this is a kingdom where for, for those who are, take part in it, the, the punishment of sin has been removed, the, pres- or the power of sin has been removed, and now we are only longing for that presence of sin to be removed. A time when, when death and pain and sorrow are, are taken out of the equation, and we get to live the life that we were meant to live. The life we were meant to have. And, and the role of the, the laborer is, is this mission. It's to prepare people for that. It's to point them to that. It's, it's to show them a new reign, a new rule that's actually life-giving. That's the mission. And so uh, we'll move on to the, the third aspect of the passage, the heart of laborers. What does the heart of, of the laborers look like toward the harvest? If you'll read verses 10 through 16 with me of chapter 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable in that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazine, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Somebody would look at that passage and they'd say, well, there's that God again, like that angry little kid with a magnifying glass over the anthill talking about judgment. And what we fail to hear is the heart of Jesus. We fail to hear, and, 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 and the heart of Jesus is expressed in this one word, woe. Next week, uh, somebody's gonna share a little bit deeper what that word means, but I'll say what woe doesn't mean. Woe doesn't mean, yeah, this is not a picture of a street uh, preacher who is, who, who, is, who is gladly talking about the end of the world with some sort of sick glee. Do you hear the heart of Jesus? This is, this is not triumph. This is lament towards people. It's lament. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, something that happened with the disciples they're headed towards uh, the Samaritan town, and um, uh, they're, they're, they're going there to prepare for Jesus. He's gonna spend the night there on their way to Jerusalem. But the Samaritan town doesn't let them stay there. They reject him. And so one of the disciples says, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? That's a, a, a connection to Sodom there. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? In other words, He wants to see the place judged. More than that, this individual wants to be the hand that judges them. See, here they come to to prepare a place for Jesus, and they're rejected. And so he's personally rejected. He's indignant. He's vengeful. Vengeance is a a thing that human beings should not wield. Vengeance is a poison to our soul. We don't know how. How? to make up for what somebody takes from us in a way that's actually just. I think of uh, the line uh, from uh, Melville's uh, Moby Dick. And in Captain Ahab, if you know the story, he calls out to the whale in vengeance, and, and, and if you want to like a, a line about vengeance, like there's nothing bigger than this line. Towards thee I roll. Thou all-destroying but unconquering whale, to the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. That's vengeance, right? Now some of you, uh, you, didn't, you didn't read the book. You saw Star Trek II, and that's where I got it from too. Very well read I am. But you, but you hear the vengeance. See, vengeance is not something that we were meant to, to delve out. Only God can do it. Only God can, because he's the only one that can do it just. I think of the, the movie uh, Backdraft. It's a, a really old but great film, and uh, it's mo- about this, this arsonist. And there's a scene in the movie, uh, Robert De Niro plays a, um, uh, an arsonist investigator, and he goes to this parole hearing. Um, the, the guy who's, who's on, uh, being, about to be paroled His name is, uh, is uh, Ronald Bartell, And um, he's about to, to be paroled He's about to be let go For the for arson that he's committed And so he goes in to, to kind of prove to the board That he's not fit And so he interrupts the hearing And he, he brings out this doll That has been badly burned And he says to, to Ronald do, do you remember whose doll this was? He talks a little bit about the, the doll And I won't, won't go into it for the sake of our kids here But he looks at Ronald and he says, Ronald, what do you want to do to the world? And Ronald looks up to him. He's played by Donald Southern. And he looks up and he says, I want to burn it. Burn it all. See, there's some of us self-righteous enough to believe that that's what should happen to the rest of the world. And oftentimes, those people mask their self-righteousness with religiosity. I think that there are some people who call themselves Christians, who believe that they are righteous and the rest of the world needs to go to hell in a handbasket. I think that there are some of us who would call ourselves Christians and our ultimate desire is actually to watch it burn. And that is not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is to save it. The heart of Jesus is to redeem it. But oftentimes because of our own self-righteousness and because we're offended or because of whatever else, we look at somebody and we actually desire for that person to go to hell. Remember what Abraham said towards God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just and he is simply reflecting the heart of God God is just and he is just and the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament in John 3:16, 16 4 God so loved the world what? that he gave his only son we would not perish but have everlasting life and he goes on in verse 17 and says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him the heart of god is not the destruction of the world it's the redemption of the world where is your heart at in that where's mine I'm just to consider this. Abraham says to God, basically he, he says, will you for 10 people have mercy on thousands of sinners? Will you save 10 people that, and have mercy? When you look at, at God in Jesus Christ, what happens? He comes and he lives the sinless life that we can't live. He's the only one that's righteous. See, that's the truth about it. Nobody in Sodom was righteous because there's never been anybody righteous. None of us are righteous. All of us are children of wrath. All of us are enemies of God. And yet Jesus comes and he lives this life on our behalf to go to the cross. And at the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. You think the wrath of God coming down on Sodom was something. The wrath of God coming down on Jesus, which he absorbed. He absorbed, and justice is met in that. The wrath of God is assuaged in that, but also in that mercy is met. Mercy, because he takes what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve, but grace is given. We're given his righteousness, which we don't deserve. All there at the cross. See, one righteous man dying for a whole world of wickedness. God did that. Because of his desire to save. He's not an angry kid standing over an anthill with a magnifying glass. It's not who he is. We'll look at the last section together, and this is the section of, of rejoicing. There are three groups of people who are called to rejoice. The first, in verses 17 through 20, the 72 people come back, and, uh, and, and they're, they're rejoicing because they cast out demons. And Jesus is like, that's all well and good. You know, as far as that thing goes, like, I'm going to handle all that. He says, here's what you need to rejoice in. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in heaven, that you fit in the kingdom of heaven, that, that you have a place there. Rejoice in the fact that God has saved you you see, I think if we rejoice in the fact that God has saved us, I don't think that we can have the posture towards the world of, of, of like burn it all down. I think when we realize what we have been saved from, we look at the world with more compassion. So we rejoice. Are you, do you rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven? The second part of, of rejoicing in verses 21 and 22, Jesus is actually rejoicing. He's rejoicing over the fact that God's salvation, it, it's been revealed to humble people. It's been revealed to, to, to the people who, in many people's eyes, aren't, aren't the wise, aren't the, aren't the, 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 the smart, aren't the, the wealthy or the powerful. It is the simple people who, who this salvation has been revealed to. And Jesus, is, he's rejoicing over that fact. But then there's this last group of people he calls to rejoice, and that's the disciples. Verse 23 and 24 Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's calling them to rejoice because there's all this redemptive history of people who have longed for the moments that they are seeing, longing to see redemption happen, longing to see salvation take root and take shape and take form. Abraham didn't see it. Moses didn't see it. Elijah didn't see it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, none of them saw it. David, Solomon, nobody saw it, but they longed for it and they looked forward to it. And here the disciples, they're living in the midst of it. It's playing out all around them. And for us, it's accomplished. The work of Jesus is done. It's finished. And we get to be a part of this kingdom. Do we rejoice at that fact that the work is done? I'm gonna conclude with a story. Maybe some of you guys heard about this uh, this week, uh, the story of Kerry of Willis, Kari Willis. Uh, at the, the ripe young age of 26, uh, Willis has retired from the National Football League. He was the starting safety of the Indianapolis Colts. He played for three years, he was drafted in 2019. Um, initially, like his paycheck wasn't that great, he only made $3 million over the course of the last three years. He is actually leaving his contract early and he's walking away from two and a half million dollars. Now, if he'd finish out his contract, play another two years, he'd become a free agent and that's when the money would start rolling in. And he is, he's not retiring because he is, uh, he's tired or because he's hurt or because he's injured. He's actually had a really decent career and, and his trajectory looks really, really good. He, he stands to make a lot of money. He stands to have a good career with people cheering his name, with kids wearing jerseys with his name on the back. Like he stands to to really stay at the apex or even go higher than that at at the highest peak of anybody in their career. And he's walking away from that for Jesus. Here's what he tweeted this week. "'With much prayer and deliberation, I have elected to officially retire from the NFL.'" as I endeavor to devote the remainder of my life to the further advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank all of my family, friends, and those who have supported me on this journey thus far, and I look forward to your continued support through the next phase of my life. I am both humbled and excited to pursue the holy call that God has for my life, which brings me much joy and purpose. Rejoice in that. Now, dads, Let's say he's your kid. Let's say your 26-year-old comes to you, whether it's you know, professional sports or you know, a professional musician or whatever, but your kid comes to you and they have made it. Like, all the years of you taking them to practices and all the work that you put into them and all of the, you know, the, the traveling and, and the expense of extra coaching or, or tutoring or whatever. Like, all the work that you helped them in, in becoming and getting to this point. And not, not to mention the talent that they have. Talent and gifting that, that thousands and thousands of other people would kill themselves to have. Like, they, they, they've risen to this point. And here they are at 26 and they're, 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 at the top and they come to you and say, Dad, I'm leaving it all for Jesus. How would you respond? Think about that, dads. Would you be like, what? You can't do that. Like, play play for another six years. Just play for six, another eight years, maybe? Like, just, just earn, like, another... 10 or 15 million dollars then you can retire like you're in your peak you're in your prime right now to give up now and and to go follow Jesus like follow Jesus later how many of you as dads like that's what you'd be tempted to say to your kid or how many of us hopefully would say praise God son go daughter go give everything you have for him Because I would rather see you at the end of your life having spent it all and be broke and penniless, having having poured out your life for Jesus than to see you at the end of your life rich, fat, and wealthy, having everything that the world could give you. Because Jesus can give you something better. How many of us at Dads, we, we would want our kids to leave everything and follow Jesus? Now to you dads, especially the ones of you who had little ones up here this morning. Would you model that for your kids? Would you model a life that demonstrates that you are willing to at great personal cost follow Jesus? Would you model a life that says Jesus is worth it? The labor is worth it. Would you model that kind of life? Because believe it or not, you're already preaching a sermon to your children whether or not that's true for you. Dads, we are preaching a a sermon to our children every day whether or not Jesus is worth it by what we give our time to, by what we're spending our lives on. Would we be willing to reorder all of our relationships? All of them, our marriage, our our relationship with our parents, our relationship with our kids. Were we willing to follow Jesus first, to make Jesus the highest, to seek him first, to make that the most important relationship we have? Thirdly, are we willing to leave the old life of sin behind? Men, are we willing to go forward without our flesh dragging us back? Are we willing to go forward without the the world's lies telling us there's something bad back there? Are we willing to go forward without an enemy trying to deceive us? Are we willing to leave our old lives behind in order to follow Jesus? I pray that we are. I'm gonna close in prayer in a moment. We're gonna take communion together. And so uh, I'm gonna pray. The band's gonna come up. But when they come up, um, we're going to partake a communion a little bit differently this morning. We've gotten rid of the buckets, which might be a good thing. If you're sitting on the aisle, down in front of you on a shelf, there's a tray of communion elements. And so you could take those out and you could pass them down the row. Now I want to give you a little tip about these little plastic cups. Jesus, when he instituted this sacrament, didn't have to deal with this, but we do. You take the little end that sticks out and you bend it all the way down until you hear break. Then you peel the, the top layer off. Okay? So appreciate your, your patience with that. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing, and then we're gonna partake of communion together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of God. Thank you for the work that you've already accomplished to set us free. If we lived out of that work, we would love others if we lived out of what you have already accomplished for us, if we would recognize the state in which you found us and the state in which you saved us into what you have now redeemed us, if we truly understood that, then we would look around at the world that still needs to hear about your kingdom and we wouldn't judge it and we wouldn't condemn it. We would love it and we would preach to it the truth of who you are. Help us to be reminded of what you've done Help us to see the great cost of it. And help us out of love for you to love the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray.